Coming up, an assassination plot, undercover secret agents, and the vanishing act of a mysterious British hit woman. The plan was that she could sit in a flat overlooking the road, wait until Salama's car drove past, and press the button to detonate the bomb. Timing was absolutely crucial here. From the Daily Mail newsroom, I'm Amelia Hempel, and this is Scoop, a Mail Plus podcast series where we take a look back at some of the Mail's most remarkable investigations and hear from the journalists who got the scoop. Tom Rawstorn has been a feature writer for 20 years, covering everything from court cases, international stories and big profile pieces. But one story that he wrote back in 2010 still plays on his mind. Most stories have a beginning, a, a middle and an end. And those that don't have an end are always the most intriguing. And as a journalist, you want to fill in the blanks to write that ending, to solve the thriller, if you like. Tom came across the story by accident while reading about a 2010 assassination sting in Dubai. The sting was carried out by Mossad, the Israeli secret intelligence agency, on a high-profile leader of Hamas, the Palestinian Islamist militant organisation. Dubai's police chief has said from now on, people suspected of being Israeli, even if they hold foreign passports, won't be allowed into the United Arab Emirates. It's the latest fallout from the assassination of Hamas commander Mahmoud al-Mabou, a crime the police are pinning squarely on the Israeli intelligence agency Mossad. The story was something like out of a uh, James Bond film. Israel wanted revenge on a man who they blamed for the kidnap and murder of two Israeli soldiers. They'd tracked him to Dubai, where they dispatched a team of more than 20 agents to kill him. Having checked into the same hotel as him, the hit squad managed to break their way into his hotel room while he was out. They used all sorts of spy tricks. Two of them at one stage were dressed up as tennis players. Another was hanging around the lift and diverted the attention of some passers-by so they didn't see what was going on. In the end, they got into the room, they killed their target, and they tried to make it look like a natural death. But as it turned out, in actual fact, he'd been electrocuted, drugged and strangled. Afterwards, the authorities, trying to work out who was responsible for the hit, discovered that the 20-strong hit team had entered using false or fabricated passports, a number of which, about a dozen, were British passports or passports that were made to seem like they were British. And this wasn't the first time British passports were used by undercover Mossad spies. The article briefly mentioned another high-profile murder plot involving Israeli and Palestinian agents, and that happened in Beirut back in 1979. It was just a few lines, but it caught Tom's interest. A high-profile terrorist leader named Ali Hassan Salama also known as the Red Prince in terror circles, had been blown up in the streets of Beirut by a strategically placed car bomb. It had been detonated from a nearby flat overlooking the road, and in that flat, the authorities had found a discarded passport belonging to a young British woman whose name was Erica Chambers. So who was this Erica Chambers, Tom, and how did she get mixed up in all of this Middle Eastern secret agent world? Well, that's what I wanted to find out. The passport photo that was released at the time was of a dark-haired British woman in her early 30s. But there seemed to be a lot of missing parts here that I wanted to piece together. 
Was Erica Chambers a real person? And if so, what had happened to her? And why was she risking her life to help murder this Palestinian commander, Ali Hassan Salama? To understand this undercover mission that Erica Chambers was sent on in Beirut, we need to know a bit more about the man she killed, the Red Prince, a.k.a. Commander Ali Hassan Salama, who was also the Chief of Operations for Black September. Tell me about this organisation, Tom. Well, Black September was the Palestinian militant organisation responsible for the 1972 Munich massacre. Spielberg made a film about it, Munich, in which he tells the story of how 11 Israeli athletes and officials were kidnapped and killed during the Munich Summer Olympics of 1972. Good afternoon. I'm speaking to you live just outside the Olympic Village in Munich, West Germany. At this moment, eight or nine athletes of the Israeli team are being held prisoner. These guerrillas are a group called Black September. Commandos have automatic weapons on the hostages. A deal had been made. We know the Israelis have disappeared. Massive security forcing in front of the Arabs. They're all gone. The militants scaled the walls of the athletes' compound with machine guns and grenades. After this happened, Mossad, the Israeli counterterrorism agency, sent its special forces out with the sole mission of hunting down all of those responsible. The mission was called Operation Wrath of God. It does sound just like a James Bond film. How aware was the international community that this big revenge operation was going on? It very quickly, I think, became apparent what was happening because within 41 days of the attack on the athletes, Mossad had struck back or someone had struck back. There were shootings and assassinations across Europe. The first target to be eliminated was a man called Viles Viter, who was shot in Rome by a hit squad as he returned to his flat one evening. The following day, Israeli radio proudly reported the liquidation of the first of those involved in the Munich massacre. Then there was another hit in Paris. This involved a table in a flat belonging to one of the PLO's top men being switched with one built by Mossad that was packed with plastic explosive. A telephone call was made to the flat. He went to the table and the bomb was detonated. So this carried on as a process really of them picking off one by one the targets they wanted. But for years, the person they really wanted, Ali Hassan Salama, one of the chief commanders of Black September, remained at large. But surely your character, this young British girl, Erica Chambers, didn't entirely mastermind this whole plot to assassinate him? No, the attack in Beirut, which ultimately took his life, was a complex undercover mission. And there were some other key players involved. Obviously, their identities have been kept secret for a long time. And the main Mossad agent sent to the Lebanese capital of Beirut was known as Agent D. Now, he had spent years trailing Salama and reporting back to Israeli intelligence about his life and his whereabouts, anything, in fact, that could build up a picture of him for a future hit. That sounds like a pretty dangerous job, living under this deep cover. Yes, interestingly, it was revealed quite recently that Agent D actually met Salama and became friends with him, which was an incredibly huge risk for a spy and placed him in considerable danger. He'd been sent to live in Beirut and to hang out, literally hang out in the International Hotel where Salama was known to use the gym. 
And it was one day while using some gym equipment, Agent D was working out his abs and Salama came up, struck up a conversation, told him he was doing it all wrong and then asked him if he would come up and play squash with him. The agent, realising what great access this would give him, agreed, despite, again, obviously this huge risk to him, should he ever have been found out. And at one point, he even went for dinner with his wife, with Salama's wife. What? Surely that was against the rules? Or was that part of the plan? Well, Salama was always surrounded by armed bodyguards. So Agent D knew that one slip-up and he'd have been killed. But this friendship also gave him great insight into his routines and movements around the city, which started to slowly help Mossad build the assassination plot. So Agent D, as he was known, left the country, supposedly on holiday, but actually to meet with Mossad authorities, report what he'd found out and come up with a plan. So what happened next, Tom? Well, by this stage, Agent D had got to know Salama pretty well and had been out with him, even in his personal car, several times. So he knew his routine, that he would normally leave his home at around noon for a drive. His street was a one-way street with a right turn at the end. And then around the corner, there were three parking spots. So a car rigged with explosives could be placed there and detonated when Salama and his bodyguards drove past. And so this is where the young British spy Erica Chambers came in, wasn't it? Yes, it was. So they, this was obviously not going to be a one-man hit, and they needed someone who wouldn't be suspected. Erica had a Christian-sounding name, so could travel on her own documents without being flagged as a potential threat. If anything went wrong, she would probably be able to get asylum at the British Embassy. The plan was that she could sit in a flat overlooking the road, wait until Salama's car drove past, and press the button to detonate the bomb. Timing was absolutely crucial here. So how did they set everything up? This was a man who obviously knew he was in constant danger and was incredibly careful about his security detail. Well, Agent D first smuggled the explosives into the country from Jordan. Again, they were hidden in a piece of sitting room furniture. They got across the border by good luck, really. Security didn't properly check it. But no doubt it must have been a nerve-wracking moment for him. Once back in Beirut, another agent rigged up the car in the dead of night. And Erica Chambers, who was now living in the flat overlooking the road, she was using the name of Penelope and posing as a sweet young lady who looked after stray cats. She was delivered the detonator. It was her job to set the bomb off. The day of the hit arrived, January 22nd, 1979, and Erica was stationed at her window pretending to do some painting but actually waiting for Salame's convoy to turn around that corner so that she could detonate 100 kilograms of explosives. That tension must have been absolutely insane, Tom. Absolutely, but she did it. And as she pressed that button, her whole life changed. Salama's four bodyguards were killed outright, and he was critically injured, dying later in hospital. But four innocent bystanders were also killed and 16 people were injured in the explosion. So how did she escape? And do we know why she left her passport behind? Well, this is where the story starts to become mysterious. Amidst all the chaos and the confusion, I guess nobody would have noticed Penelope slipping quietly out of her flat. She'd taken the trouble before she left to fill the cat's dishes with food and even told the neighbour that the commotion had upset her so much that she intended to rest in a hotel nearby. 
But in fact, she'd never returned to this flat. And to this day, her exact whereabouts are a complete mystery. So who was this Erica Chambers? It seems like such a huge risk to use your real identity for a murder assassination plot. What was her connection to Israel and to Mossad in the first place, Tom? Well, that's really where I started with this, and that's what I wanted to find out. And the first thing you do as a journalist when you're looking at a story like this is look at what's been written in the past. So I went to look at the cuttings, and cuttings from 1979 aren't stored electronically. So it was a a phone call to the Daily Mail's library, and they rushed off to the archives, had a look through the files, and came up with the original cuttings, which literally are cuttings, bits of paper cut out of the newspaper and kept in an envelope with the name Erica Chambers on. They then photocopied them and scanned them and sent them back to me. And what surprised me really was the fact that there were so few cuttings on it. You know, it must have been such a big story at the time, I thought. And it was a big story. But no one back in 1979 had really got to the bottom of of Erica Chambers. Was she real? Was it a fake passport? There was no answers to any of those questions. So faced with that, I did what journalists also do next, which is to start having a look at her family background to see if there's anyone around today who might be able to fill in any of the gaps about this woman to tell me whether she really existed, in fact. And when you were starting your research back in 2010, I mean, over 30 years had gone by since that incident. Was anyone still around who could help you dig up new information or it was just those those archivists? There were some clues The German author by the name of Wilhelm Dietl had looked at the revenge attacks by Mossad and had suggested that Erica Chambers was a real person. But at the same time, other clues suggested that maybe she wasn't. Maybe she was just a figment of Mossad's imagination. Following the 1979 bombing, another passport was found nearby, belonging to an individual in the name of Peter Scrivener. This passport turned out to be a forgery. Peter Scrivener did not exist. The passport had belonged, in fact, to a 27-year-old British man, a council worker called Peter Derbyshire, who had been living in London at the time of the hit. Although his surname was changed on the passport, the other details were correct. Mr Derbyshire, of course, had nothing whatsoever to do with the bombing. And that, I think, led many to assume that the Erica Chambers passport must also have been an invented identity. And so you had these passport details, not knowing if they were real. What extra digging did you then do? Well, using those details, particularly the date of birth and the place of birth, I was then able to find her birth certificate and to start building a family tree. Her birth certificate showed me that her parents were Marcus who at the time of her birth was a 37-year-old motor engineer, and her mother, Lona. They'd married during the Second World War. Marcus came from a well-to-do English background. In fact, his father was an admiral, while Lona, whose maiden name was Gross, is understood to have come from a Jewish family from Czechoslovakia, which, as we'll see, became a fairly significant element of this whole story, actually. As for Erica, she had an elder brother, Nicholas, And they were raised in comfortable surroundings in Holland Park, where both were privately educated. Their parents split as they were growing up. And Erica was raised, we understand, by her mother. 
And she'd go on to study geography at Southampton University and by all attempts was a bit of a kind of loose cannon, a bit of a daredevil riding around in a, in a mini Cooper that she'd drive around the city at high speed. So this was the details. This was the flesh I was putting on the story about this Erica Chambers. But of course, we still didn't know whether this Erica Chambers was the real Erica Chambers who would have pressed the detonator on that bomb all those years later. And at this stage, did you find any connection she had with Israel? Well, we knew about the family connection through her mother. And we understood that having travelled around the world, having left university, she ended up in Israel, or we understood she had ended up in Israel to further her studies at a Hebrew university. And it's there where it's suggested she could have been targeted by Mossad and persuaded to become an agent. And the thing they might have used to persuade her was details about what had happened to her mother's family during the Holocaust and how many of her relatives had died in it. And what do you think it was about Erica Chambers that made Mossad think she's got secret agent potential? Well, she had the Jewish background, but was British born. We also understand she spoke German, which would have been a good decoy. And all of these things would have allowed Mossad to put some distance between themselves and Israel and her had she been rumbled. And did you manage to get in touch with either of her parents to find out any more about her? Well, I started looking at this story in 2010 and unfortunately her father had died in 2009. Her mother, we understood, had predeceased him some years earlier. There had been some suggestion that Wilhelm Dietl, the German author, had attempted to contact the father some years earlier, but had been given a fairly ambiguous answer when confronting him. So this doubt about Chambers' identity persisted. But then there was an unexpected twist to the story, wasn't there? Yes. Well, it turned out from my research that Erica Chambers that we were looking for, if she were the same person, had a brother. His name was Nicholas. And after a bit of digging, it became apparent that the Nicholas Chambers in question was a QC, a high-flying lawyer, a British lawyer, and leading civil court judge who was, you know, a pillar of the British judicial establishment. Wow, that must have come as a surprise. And so was he then able to confirm or deny anything about Erica and who she was? Well, it was a happy breakthrough. And for me, it gave me the opportunity, which all journalists want, to try and square the story, to put to someone who would have known Erica the questions I wanted to put. So what I did was I managed to track him down and put a phone call into him to ask him the questions that I wanted answered. What did he say when you got him on the phone? Well, it was an intriguing conversation. He chose not to deny the story, despite being given every opportunity to do so. The first question I put to him was whether the Erica Maria Chambers, who had been named as a Mossad agent, was in fact his sister. I have a note of what he replied. You are pursuing from your own point of view a very proper line of inquiry, but you will understand that it's not something I can help you with. The conversation continued. I said, you appear to be her brother. And I'm intrigued to know if that is accurate and what indeed has happened to your sister. He replied, Mr Chambers replied, with a laugh, the answer is you probably are intrigued. I continued, is she your sister? Is she the same person who has been named as this individual? 
he's dead. I think probably given what I have to do and so on, it is probably best to give a no comment. Sorry about that. I continued, look, I'm writing an article about her. I hope if the Israeli intelligence service had assumed someone's identity, i.e. your sister's, you might be able to guide me on that. He said, it's a very fair line, but there one is, well, it's probably best that I don't say anything. It was an intriguing response, but for me, it really did answer the question, I think. How did he react to your call, Tom? Was he surprised or concerned? Did he get angry? No, he he didn't. And it makes me wonder whether he must have been expecting a call like this at some stage. He's a lawyer and he replied like a lawyer. They generally know how to deal with journalists. But having said that, what I took away from his response was sufficient confirmation to run the story. My concern always was that we ran a story in which we said that the woman who detonated the bomb that killed Salama was definitely this woman. And it turned out that in actual fact, she was an old age pensioner living in, say, Brighton, that her passport had been stolen by Mossad and that she'd had absolutely nothing to do with it. That was my worry. And as a journalist, that is the biggest worry always, getting something dramatically wrong like that. But having spoken to Mr Chambers, I was confident enough that what I'd found out backed up what others had intimated and suggested previously and that they hadn't used a fake passport and that the Erica Chambers in that passport was the Erica Chambers involved in the assassination hit. It makes it all the more intriguing, doesn't it? And do we know how she'd escaped after the assassination happened? Well, it had clearly all been meticulously planned. Perhaps she didn't mean to leave the passport behind, but she must have known that she was going to have to change her identity anyway. The Palestinian forces were furious when they found out what had happened, but the agent's escape had been worked out in advance, and Erica and her accomplices drove straight to a port before being spirited out of Lebanon on an Israeli gunboat. And as well as speaking to her brother, you also found some sources in Israel, didn't you? Well, that's right. We have stringers working in Israel and they put me in contact with other contacts who had associations with the intelligence services over there. And it was suggested to me through these contacts that Erica Chambers was alive but would not talk if approached. There was a discussion had at the time, was it worth me flying over there to try and track her down and to talk to her? But the minute I arrived, I knew that Israeli intelligence services would know that I was there and it would be a fruitless journey. So it was decided that I wouldn't go. So it was clear to you then that she was in Israel? Yes, it was. By that stage, I think we were confident that she was in Israel. Tom's article, The Top QC, His Vanished Sister and the Mystery of Mossad's First British Hit Woman, went to press on the 20th of February 2010. So, Tom, were you worried about the reaction to this piece or any repercussions? Like I say, I was worried that we might have got it wrong and you always have that moment after publication, the day or two afterwards, waiting for an email or a letter to arrive in your inbox or a phone call from the Daily Mail's legal department saying we've had a complaint. But in many ways, I suppose I was hopeful. I was hopeful that she or a relative might have seen it or a relative might have forwarded it to her 
and that the weeks down the line, she might have wanted to talk more. She might have wanted to put her side of the story. Sadly, nothing came back. Over the years since I wrote that article, from time to time, I've returned to the story and contacted a number of other more distant relatives in the hope that one of them might be able to put me in touch with her or might themselves be able to fill in more of the missing gaps. But sadly, I'm still waiting for that call. And while a lot of this story does still remain a mystery, a few years after Tom's article in 2019, a piece appeared on Israeli TV about Operation Wrath of God, where a woman called only Anna was authorised to speak supposedly on behalf of Erica Chambers. Anna. Anna confirmed that Erica had understood the consequence and repercussions of her actions and also that following it that she would have to change her identity and leave her old life very much behind. And what else did you get from this Israeli TV piece? Was there much new information here? Yes, through Anna, we learned that Chambers had been living under a different name and under a different identity ever since the assassination hit. And this woman called Anna said she understood well what it meant to be cut off from her family, friends and identity totally, nor enter England anymore. And she agreed. She thought that it was worth it. And there was also some insight into how the assassination had affected her personally, wasn't there? There was more interesting insight into that. When her handlers asked Chambers how she would feel about carrying out the killing, she said that she didn't know because she'd never killed anyone before and that she'd tell him afterwards. But she said that she was prepared to do it. And after the assassination, clearly had a big impact on her, as one would expect. And there's this one comment at the end of the interview where Anna said that Chambers had long been haunted by the death of one of the innocent women who was just walking by when the bomb detonated. Anna said she, as in Chambers, had thought about this girl almost every day for many years. So, Tom, do we know if any of the other agents felt any kind of guilt or remorse about this? It does seem like they were just able to play judge, jury, executioner and face no repercussions for any of this collateral damage that went on. Other than the reported regrets that Chambers is said to have felt for the bystanders, Agent D was asked about his relationship with Salama, which, if we remember, he had infiltrated himself into his life very effectively. And he admitted, he said of his target, he was smart, a strong man, a man's man, intelligent. We had a lot in common. He even said, actually, that he quite liked him. But then pushed about it, he said, look, he killed 11 athletes in Munich before the entire world. He massacred them in Germany, and so he deserved to die. I had no doubt. He can be the nicest man in the world. So what? To them, he was still a terrorist. Yes. And what questions would you want to ask her now, Tom, if you got the chance? The question I'd really like to ask her would, would be about that one second or that millisecond or the seconds leading up to it, that moment where she had her thumb over the detonator. I'd like to ask her if she had the choice again, would she do it? Would she press the button knowing now how her life had changed since that moment? Because I get the sense, as she said, that she didn't know the consequence of it entirely. Yes, she knew the bomb would blow up. But did she know the consequences on her? She was 30 at the time. Did she know how it would change her life forever? And this isn't even the end of the story. I find it 
quite unnerving how these undercover spy hits still go on today, as you saw in the Dubai assassination. We've had the Russian poisoning in Salisbury, these Novichok attacks. It does make you wonder what's going on behind the scenes, doesn't it? Yes. And I mean, the hit we're talking about happened in 1979. But as we know, the Salisbury attacks were a couple of years ago. And still we have these spies who are able to come into countries, carry out a hit and then escape and disappear, despite the full knowledge of what they've done and who is responsible. If you look at the Litvinenko attack in London, that was effectively a nuclear attack in our capital city. The Salisbury poisonings were a chemical weapon attack. And yet they walk away and are protected by their state. So we're in a world which is much smaller today, we always say, than it ever has been. And yet, if you want, you can still disappear and hide effectively from justice. So while the mystery of Erica Chambers, the British Mossad hit woman, may never be truly solved, Tom is off researching once again, piecing together the puzzle of his next big feature story. And you can read more of Tom Rawston's work in the Daily Mail. We'll be back again soon with another episode of Scoop, taking a look behind the scenes of some of the Mail's biggest investigations. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Amelia Hempel. Goodbye.